0: Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter. We're going to focus on verses 54 and 55 this morning, but I'm going to back up and read the entire Magnificat of Mary. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever." And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we turn to this text, but finishing up the text and then stepping back and taking a look at it. Lord, I I pray that not only will you put us right in the middle of this scene. Not only will you help us uh, understand and and see the beauty of the song. But also, dear Lord, that we would apply it, that that it would become our song, that it it, it helps us identify how we should worship. And in particular, this morning, as we approach your table, as we take this sacrament of communion, that we would apply the very things that we're talking about this morning and that we would worship you as you should be worshipped in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you might have guessed by now, we're going to wrap up this beautiful song of worship, the Magnificat of Mary, by looking at these last two verses. But as the Lord would have it, we're also going to be taking communion this morning. And and of course, when we take communion, when we we approach the table of the Lord, and as I said earlier, you're going to have to imagine the table because it's not here. Uh, We're using these little cups that, uh, you know, are individually uh, wrapped. But nonetheless, when we approach the Lord's table, we do so in remembrance of the sacrifice and the grace and the mercy, as Brother Rick just sang of standing or or kneeling at the foot of the cross. But uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, it is not just a means of grace. It is a means of grace. It is one of the ways that we grow in Christ. But it is also an act of worship. And and that's the reason we always make sure that we take communion as part of our worship services. Because it, it is a time when God's people gather together to worship him. Now when we look at Mary's song as a whole, zeroing in on just these two verses to start with, what we have noticed about this song is that it teaches us much about worship, because actually that's what this is. It is a beautiful song of worship. And and so what I want to do this morning is, first of all, I, I want to go back and make sure that we remember the three points or the essential attributes of worship that we've already learned from this song. I want to add to it two more later on, but we're going to back up and look at the whole song together when we add those. And in between, we're going to look at these last two verses, because Mary introduced introduces another aspect of the redemptive plan of God in this part of her song because she's going to turn to the covenants and God's faithfulness in his covenants, a very huge part of what what the plan of redemption, especially throughout those Old Testaments. So, first of all, let's remind ourselves of what we have already learned. First of all, just the scene. If you remember, Mary has already been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit the Christ child, God in the flesh, is growing in her womb. And after this occurs, she quickly takes off to the hill country of Judea so that she can visit her relative Elizabeth, who also is with child in a miraculous way. When the two women meet, it is just a glorious meeting because the Holy Spirit is there, fills Elizabeth, and even the baby, the six-month-old fetus, leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. Elizabeth kind of goes into her own little song of blessing, and then Mary launches into this song of worship that we know as the Magnificat, or the Magnificat, however you want to um, um, pronounce it. But let me go over the three points about worship that we have already noticed. The very first one that we pulled from those first two verses, and, and, and these thoughts and themes are throughout the song, so it's kind of, we're not saying that it is only in these first two verses that we get this. But the first thing that we learned about worship is that it is internal. It comes from a heart that is in love with God. It is not something that is external in any way. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And and, and we talked a little bit about Jesus sitting at the side of the well there in Samaria when the woman came and he had that conversation with her. And he told her that God is looking for those who will worship him as he should be worshiped. Do We worship God in spirit and in truth. And that is the way he has designated that we worship him. And so therefore there's no way, no possible way that true worship can come from a heart that is at enmity with God. In fact, we learn that the words of worship on the mouths of people who have rejected God's plan of salvation are, are wasted words he, he, because that's not worship in the sense that God wants us to worship Him. He wants us to worship His Son and to come to Him through His Son. Well, the second thing that we noticed about worship is that it was all about God. It was a a worship that exalted God. It was God-centric, if you will. And of course, that sounds kind of redundant, doesn't it? Because after all, you would think that everyone would come to worship God, but that's not the case. So many people come and they call it worship, except they're here for their own reasons. They have a felt need. They are afraid God is going to punish them if they don't. They have some tradition that they fulfill. There's all kinds of reasons they that people come to worship other than the right ones, which is to exalt and glorify and honor and praise the one and only God of creation. That's why we are here, brothers and sisters, it's not even evangelism. Even though evangelism is always part of our services, that's not, it's not the focus. We are here to worship God. And, and, and we took some of the glimpses uh, that we get of Scripture. Remember, we looked into the book of Revelation a couple of times, and we noticed the way that they worshiped God there. They're glorifying Him. In other words, from the 19th chapter, we read this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's really the theme of theology in the Old Testament. God is the sovereign of the universe and He reigns that universe and we come before Him in reverence and awe. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. That's the reason that we're here. But you know, when we started to talk about the reasons that God was being exalted by Mary and the kind of God that he was, we notice, and we're going to repeat this several times, that Mary has a fantastic command of Old Testament Scripture and an amazing grasp of theology because she pointed out that on the one hand, God is almighty, but on the other hand, he gives her good things. He's concerned in her life that God is perfect, perfect in his holiness, his transcendent glory. He is set apart from his creation. He is completely holy in that sense. But at the same time, he's merciful. He's an eminent God. He wants to be in the midst of his people. And so we notice something about God and worship that is hugely important. Yes, God is holy. And and that means that there is no one who can stand in his presence. He lives in unapproachable light. He is incomprehensible. He is perfect in his righteousness. And there is no human being on earth who can possibly stand in that kind of a holiness. And because of that, because of our sinfulness, God is wrathful at our sin. And, and and we pointed out, God can't be God if he's not wrathful at sin. Seriously, he, he can't be a winking celestial grandfather who kind of looks the other way when you sin. If he is holy and if he is just, the necessary reaction of holiness to sinfulness is wrath. And so therefore, every one of us is deserving of God's wrath. Now... I told you when we studied this, I don't want you carrying that around with you. It's not like I want you to carry a burden of your sinfulness around with you because we've been released from that because those who trust in Jesus Christ have been forgiven. But when you come to worship, that needs to be in the forefront of your mind. Because the reason you are here is because of the mercy of God. Because of his grace. Because of his loving kindness. You didn't do anything to deserve his mercy. He gives it to you freely because you believe in his son Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is the heart of worship. When you come to worship God, you come with a heart that is absolutely beautiful broken knowing that you will never face the judgment that you so rightly deserve and so when we have that heart that means that we are exalting God placing him where he should be placing ourselves where we should be and just being in reverent awe of the fact that he indeed loves us The third point that we came up with about about, um, uh, worship was that it, it is to be approached with humility. And it is my contention, brothers and sisters, it is impossible for you to worship God in an arrogant spirit if you have that last point firmly in mind. If you recognize his holiness, if you recognize his omnipotence, if you recognize the transcendent glory of God and the fact that you were profane, defiled in his presence, and that he has forgiven you out of the love of his heart and you had nothing to do with it, how on earth are you going to be arrogant when you come to worship him? And we talked about that arrogance and how sometimes it takes the form of a haughty spirit. Sometimes it takes the form of a self-centeredness. But often it takes the form of a planned and orchestrated ignorance. To say, I, I really don't want to know what Scripture says. I don't want to read it. I don't want to look at it. You know, I just want, all I need is Jesus. And yes, Jesus is all you need. But let me tell you something the thief on the cross had minutes to live. But if he knew Jesus and he had a chance to live, he would have adored the word of Jesus. And he would have spent his time in that word. And if you love Jesus, James, Paul, Peter, the whole New Testament tells you that you are going to be doing everything you can to please him, to know who he is. And so we exalt God in that way and we are humble as we come before him. We read a beautiful passage from, uh, again, from Revelation Looking at the very throne room of God and seeing this scene, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And we pointed out that these are heaven's heavyweights. These are the four creatures that stand on the four corners of the dais where God is. And there are 24 thrones around those with 24 elders with 24 golden crowns on their heads. When these guys worship, they throw their crowns down at the feet of God and prostrate themselves before the Lord. That, brothers and sisters, is true humility. And if they are humble in the way that they worship God, certainly we should be humble as well. Well, those are the first three points that we've pulled out of this prayer so far. We've got two more, and I'm going to share later on. But I'm going to wait until after we make it through our text because the um, they really kind of uh, uh, we're going to step back and take a look at the entire song together. So, with that stated, why don't we jump into these two verses, the fifty fourth and the fifty fifth verse? Because Mary has just been talking about, in the three verses that precede this, she's just been talking about the kingdom and how different and upside down this kingdom is going to be. And now she's going to move in even deeper as she talks about the covenantal faithfulness of God and how he is a God who keeps his promises. So let's take a look first at the 54th verse. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has helped his servant Israel. And I think that the first thing that we need to determine is not just what does Mary mean by his servant Israel... But, but what does Luke mean when he says that, when he writes this down, his servant Israel? Well, to me, there's no doubt in my mind that Mary, when she says his servant Israel, is referring to ethnic Israel, racial Israel, political, national Israel, the Israel that she lives in because, after all, she is an Old Testament Jewish She is a member of the Messianic community. And that Messianic community is is waiting for the advent of the Messiah. Now, Calvin points out that that word helped, It, it, it has the connotation of lifted up. And when you look at that word, lift it up next to what comes later, that he, it is in his mercy that he remembers, Calvin points out that more than likely, this is an implicit statement of the apostasy of the world around uh, the Messianic community. And there, if you read all of them, all through these first couple of, of, of chapters of Luke, you'll notice a, a, almost an anguish. That there's this underlying feeling of angst as they look around at the absolute corruption of the worship of Yahweh and they fervently pray for the coming of the Messiah to set things right. Originally, and actually in, in your bulletin outline, I, I was going to go off on sort of a rabbit trail here because in many ways... What they faced and what caused them anguish is exactly what we face right now as Christians living in this country. As we look around us and see the godlessness and literally our country seeming to go to hell in a handbag. And we fervently pray, cry out to the Lord for a revival. That's exactly what they were doing back then. I'm not going to go into it right now. I want to kind of keep my focus, but we will delve into that in the after church if you want to stick around. We'll go and take a look at that, um, uh, making a parallel between Mary's time in the Messianic community and the Christian church in the world in which we live today. But nonetheless, I I think that it it is clear that what is underlying Mary's, Mary's prayer here is that God would remember his merciful covenants with his servant, his people, Israel, and clearly thinking about the nation of Israel, but I'm not so sure that's what is on Luke's mind. Because if you go back to the three verses just before this, Mary has introduced the idea of the kingdom. And we know that the kingdom is one of Luke's primary themes all the way through this gospel, the coming of the kingdom of God. And Mary pointed out that this kingdom was an upside-down kingdom. All, everything was reversed. You know, the rich will be poor, the first will be last, the weak will be strong. Everything is backwards. And so when the kingdom comes it will bring with it radical social change to the world that it will come into. Well, I think also we should realize that when this kingdom comes, it will bring with it a radical redefinition of what servant of Israel or his servant Israel means because no longer in the New Testament is it just going to be the ethnic Israel. Now, I I know that's probably what Mary was thinking, but Luke knows as he writes this that there's going to be an exponential expansion, a radical redefinition of what it means to be a citizen of Israel. In fact, Paul is going to Use that phrase in Galatians. He's going to talk about the Israel of God. Not talking about ethnic Israel, but talking about spiritual Israel. And in fact, in Romans, he gets even more specific. He writes this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And so I think what we 're seeing here is that this this sort of expansive view of what it means to be. Israel, And in fact, later on in this chapter, Luke is going to give us one. Actually, it's not this chapter. It's the next one. It's the second chapter when Jesus is brought as an infant to the temple. And old Simeon is there to praise God when he sees the Messiah. This is what he says. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so we already see sort of an expanded idea. And, of course, Jesus is going to make this very clear in his ministry on several occasions. Like in Matthew when he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we see, I think, that there is a more expansive view of what it means to be Israel in the eyes of the New Testament writers. Well, regardless of whether it's just the Messiah or whether it is an expanded view of a, a changing of all of society, there is there, there's one method by which that change is going to take place. The Messiah is the focus of both of them, and Jesus becomes. The central aspect of that, as I believe she begins to bring this whole idea of covenants into it. Because the covenants in the Old Testament are the way that God unveils. His merciful plan of redemption. It it was all the way back to the beginning, and, and most of you know this, all the way back to the time that God was pronouncing the curses on Adam and Eve and the serpent. And as part of that curse of the serpent, he said there will come a day when the seed, singular, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, will crush him because he is going to deal with sin in that way. Well, he's talking about Jesus. And so from the very beginning, from Genesis on, the redemptive progress of God's mercy, take, as it's brought about by, by the covenants especially is leading to the fulfillment that Mary is now knows, grow, is growing in her womb. And she is singing this song about it. Take Noah, for instance, one of the first covenants when God made that covenant with Noah. Do you remember what he said to him? He said, I'm never going to destroy the world like this again. This is not the way I'm going to deal with sin. I'm going to allow springtime and harvest to continue. I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky to assure you of my promise, and I am going to let time progress until I bring the ultimate solution for sin. I'm not going to destroy it in the same way. In fact, that covenant is sometimes known as the covenant of promise. God is making a promise that he will bring a solution to sin. Well, that promise is growing in Mary's womb it is so completely tied together of course the covenant with Abraham we're going to talk about it in a little bit more detail in a moment but the covenant with Abraham famously God says to Abraham that all the families of the world are going to be blessed by your descendants well that descendant that the world is going to be blessed through is of course Jesus Christ and, and, and Moses, when he made that covenant through Moses, he gave him the law so that we would know what God expected of us. And knowing that it was impossible for us to keep that law, he gave them the sacrificial system so that there was a method of atonement and forgiveness. Well, that is exactly what Jesus came. He is the law, the perfection of the law, put under the law, but he was also the Excuse me, the sacrifice, he's the one through whom the ultimate atonement is eventually going to take place. So the covenant with Abraham, I mean, I'm sorry, with Moses is a promise being fulfilled in the womb of Mary right now. And finally, David, we know because we just read it that the angel Gabriel told Mary that her son is going to be the son of El Elyon, God Most High, and that he will sit upon the throne of David as king of kings and lord of lords. Well, that is being fulfilled in Christ. So what we see, the mercies that she is now pointing us to, the mercies that she is asking him to lift up his people in Israel, whether they are the Old Testament people or the New Testament people, is to complete and fulfill his covenantal faithfulness that he will bring them into his his favor through the work of Jesus Christ. And there's just one other thing I want to point out in this first verse, and that is that she says that that she asks God to remembrance. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And R.C. Sproul points out that God is not like us, folks. He's not like us. He doesn't forget. You know, we not only forget what God has done for us, the mercies that he has provided us. I mean, we're, we're almost of the nature that whatever God did, he did yesterday, and he's only as good as what he does today. So, it's not what you've done yesterday. It's not all the mercy you've already shown me. It's not the fact that you have saved me and you have shown me in the ultimate many, many ways that you're watching after me. It's like, what are you going to do for me today? I I, I need something because I forget. Well, Dr. Stroll points out that God doesn't forget. Sometimes we project our humanness on God. God never forgets his covenants, he never forgets a promise. And he never forgets the promises that you made to him. God always remembers. And so therefore, he is completely and totally faithful. The Old Testament speaks of this in the Psalms when it says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. And so God never forgets his promises. And brothers and sisters, this this is one of the most precious but also most central aspects of our Christian faith. And that's the promises and the hope that we have in the promises of God. If we don't have hope, if we don't have faith in his promises, then what do we have hope and faith in? What, 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 What will save us or who will save us? if not the god of all creation if it is not through his powerful right arm if we're not trusting in his salvation then how do we know we're saved if we're not trusting in his promises how do we know that this life is not there is not not all there is I mean, it, it's, it's at the foundation, and that's where our encouragement is. And I think that so many of us struggle day to day with the circumstances that are around us because we don't trust Him. We don't trust in the hope and the promises that He has given us. He loves us. He takes care of us. Nothing's going to happen to us that He hasn't planned or allowed. And so, therefore, you're in His hands. And what better hands to be in? than in the hands of God. Well, one more verse um, to this prayer. She gets specific as far as her discussion of the covenants are concerned. Look in verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, once again, and I've already mentioned this, I took you through some of these covenants, particularly Noah and Moses and David, and we see how God's mercy was written all over those covenants being fulfilled in Christ, in the baby growing in her womb. But Mary once again shows a profound sense of theology by picking out um, the covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Abraham is so hugely important. In fact, I had a professor in seminary who used to say, Brothers, we're here because of a covenant that God made with Abraham. And basically, that's it. God promised that he was going to bless us, bless the world through Abraham. And that is exactly what he has done. But it's some of the specifics of that covenant that just really come out and, and bring this home to us. You remember that God took Abraham outside, and He said, "Abraham, look up at the stars. Let me see if you can count them. In that arid environment when there wasn't a light with a hundred miles probably, that sky is filled with billions upon billions upon billions of stars, and he says, "That's your descendants." That's how your descendants are going to be. That many. You're never going to even be able to count them. Well, that is what has happened. That is us. We are those descendants. It's not just the ethnic uh, Israel. It is also the Israel of God. And, And all of them have been brought into the relationship with God through the baby in Mary's womb. He also said to Abraham at this this time, I'm going to give you a home. I'm going to give you this land. I'm I'm going to allow you to stay here. It's the promised land. Now, I'm going to allow you to be thrown into into slavery for 400 years. It I've got my reasons for that. But once I bring you out of that, once I deliver you, once I redeem you, I will bring you home. There's a promised land that I have set aside for you. Well, brothers and sisters, that's a picture of exactly what Jesus has done for us. Because, after all, it wasn't Egypt that we, were sin- that we were slaves in, but we're slaves to sin. We're slaves to the prince of this world. And he has released us, taken us out of bondage, redeemed us. And he told us, I have a home for you. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, would I have told you? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. He has a place for you. He's got your name on a reservation card at the wedding feast of the lamb. He knows that you're going to be there. He has an eternity planned for you. That is the promise that we have through the covenant that God made with Abraham. And, 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 and even in that covenant, the, the, the entry way into that kingdom is spelled out for us. Because if you remember, it had nothing to do with Abraham. Abraham is 100 years old. His wife is 90. There's no way that they're going to have a child. And in fact, when God made that covenant with him, he split those animals. He put them side to side. And he walked through twice. Two manifestations of God. Abraham is watching the whole thing. And at the end of those bloody carcasses is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because God says, I will bring you into relationship with me. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This covenant, brothers and sisters, is a covenant that is entered through faith. And faith alone. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way. But all of these things are beautifully established for us in that covenant that God made with Abraham. Once again, not bad for a teenage girl from a podunk town in rural Israel. But as you know, there's a problem with Abraham's covenant that isn't completely solved there. It it is included and shown in that bloody um, uh, inauguration of that covenant. But you see, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier When God is holy, by necessity, he must be wrathful at that which is profane. That which is profane cannot stand in the presence of that which is holy. So therefore, there must be some kind of a sacrifice. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be payment. If God is just, he has to have payment for the sins of those who sin against him. He cannot just wink at our sins. So once again, the entire covenant focuses on Jesus. The entire covenant is going to be brought to fruition, to consummation by Jesus. And that's the beauty of what Mary has said. With that said, uh, that kind of brings us to the end of the text. And now I'd like to just kind of step back from it for just a few minutes. And I'd like to introduce two additional attributes of worship, I mean, as I told you last week, I've sort of taken that opportunity to kind of use this prayer or this song to talk about worship. And there's two additional attributes. And I have to thank John MacArthur for this one because I never would have come up with it on my own. And that is that true worship is habitual. True worship is habitual. And, And the point that he made is that Mary didn't get to be Mary because she went to church on Christmas and Easter. Right, That, that doesn't happen. In fact, we've talked about it on many occasions that Mary is an extraordinary example of a young girl who has a grasp of Scripture, of Old Testament Scripture. And it, what's so amazing about it is she didn't have access to a Bible. She didn't have or own a Bible. There would have been one text, one scroll in her world, and that was in the synagogue in Nazareth. And in that synagogue, only men and boys got to approach those scrolls. The women were actually kept behind them, behind a screen. And Mary, as a little girl, would have been behind them. But somehow, through that growing up, through an habitual worship, Mary gained such a profound knowledge of Scripture that this song is absolutely chock full of it. And, oh, brothers and sisters, is that different in the world that we live in today? There is, as we talked about last week, there's a planned ignorance. I don't want to know what the Bible says. I want my own idea of what God is like or what Jesus is like. But, dear brothers and sisters, there is such a biblical illiteracy in our world. You know, they did a a, a, um, a survey when I was in seminary. I was so embarrassed because I fell into the group. Um, but they did a, a survey of seminary students who could list the Ten Commandments in order. I couldn't have. If they if they had called on me at that time, of course I'd, I'd been away from it for twenty years. But I could not have done. It. I could not have listed them in order. Could you? If you had to pass a test to take the Lord's Supper today, could you list all ten commandments in the... Well, I'm not even talking about reciting them word for word. I'm just talking about listing them. Most people can't. Earlier, we, we recited from the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, that catechism, 52 Lord's Days, over a hundred different questions and answers, that was required for children to recite verbatim before they were allowed to take the Lord's Supper, before they were allowed to approach the table, they had to be able to recite that entire catechism. And most people today in the church don't even know what a catechism is because they've never been exposed to them. Breaks my heart when sometimes when I go to Haiti and you'll pass by one of their schools. And, um, you know, like, for instance, if we're there talking about maybe building a new church or a new school, and the children are already in school, and they're just in a grass hut. And you hear them reciting their lessons through rote memory, and they're reciting the Psalms, they're reciting Scripture. They have a blackboard, but they don't have any chalk to write on the blackboard, so everything is done by rote memory. And do you realize that the little kids in rural Haiti have a better command of Scripture. They have hidden more in their hearts than most of us. I was teaching uh, my seminary class just last Thursday. And I was having some questions on Genesis four and the land of Nob and the, you know, all of the strangeness. How did those people get there? And they were asking me about specific verses, so I had to get my Bible and, you know, start looking to because I, I didn't know what verses they're talking about. Not a one of them had a Bible, and every single one of them knew the entire chapter by heart. We we, we don't have that, you see, it you. You can't go and worship occasionally and then leave and flush it from your memory when you walk out of here and have the kind of command of Scripture that Mary had. But there's another way that I think that we need to look at habitual worship. It's not just the the amount of time you spend in meditation on the Word of God. It's the amount of time that you spend in worship of God. Because you see, to someone like Mary, worship was not restricted to the hour or or definitely not for them. It was a day for them. But so many people spend an hour or two hours in church. They get upset if we go over just a wee bit because they've got other things to do. And worship wasn't restricted to that. Worship was something that occurred daily in their entire life, the way they lived their life. When Mary says this song, she's not in a synagogue, folks. She's in Zechariah's house. It's spontaneous. And this comes out of her heart, from her soul, magnifying the Lord. And that doesn't happen if you're not focused on it day in and day out. Now, it's not my intention to browbeat you this morning. I know I do that plenty. So I, that's not my intention. I really want to just kind of flow into the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. But I do want to ask you a question because I think it needs to be asked. A couple of weeks ago, I I asked you, why are you here? Because we were talking about exalting God and worship and I was asking you to sort of look at yourself, look in your hearts. Why are you here? What's the purpose? What was the motivation that got you out of bed, that got you into God's house to worship on Sunday morning? Was it to extol him, to exalt him, to honor him, to glorify him? Or was there another reason that placed you here? Well, I want to kind of turn that question around a little bit this morning. And I want to ask you, and and this is not a general question. There's not a general question for churches in general. This is a question for you. Why aren't you here? Why aren't you here? I never understood it. I've never understood it. Why, even before the pandemic, when we had Sunday night services, only a fraction of you would be here. What, what, What are the rest of you doing? Now, if you're out worshiping someplace else or if you're worshiping in in some other means, if you're focused on God's day, on God, then that's fine. I'm not saying it has to be here. But most of you, that doesn't apply. Why aren't you here? Why aren't you here on Wednesday night when we have a Bible study? Why why aren't your children here for jam club or youth group? Why aren't you making sure that they're a part, that they're getting an ongoing habitual worship? I'm not saying you have to be part of our Bible studies, but less than 10% of the people who come to church join our Bible studies. What are you doing? Why aren't you here? And I'm just going to leave that with you to consider and ask yourself that because the kind of worship that we're seeing with Mary is habitual. It goes on day in and day out, morning, noon, and night, and is something that is so completely focused on God. That that's the way you get to have it to, um, this close to the tip of your tongue. Well, one last thing that I want to bring out about worship, and that is simply this, that worship is thankful. I told you several times that this all was originally one sermon. It's taken me four, four weeks to get it out. Um, that would have been a long sermon. Um, but I, I, I wrote those four points first, and then as, just as we've gone through this, it's like you, you can't leave thankfulness out. Thankfulness is such a huge part of true worship. You come with broken hearts, recognizing you have absolutely no right to be here. There's not a person who has a right. As I said in my opening prayer this morning, there's not a person who has a right to worship. This is a privilege God has given you to call you into worship. And so therefore, when we approach him, if we approach him with the right heart, the the right attitude, the right frame of mind and soul, we are going to be so thankful. You cannot keep in your mind the holiness of God, your, your uh, defilement and his mercy and show up and not be thankful. You just can't do it. And I think that's the perfect thought to slide into communion, to slide into the taking of the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to stop listening to what I say, but I want it to pass right through your ears, right into your heart now. Because I think that the greatest value that we can have of what we have learned is to apply it. And we have an opportunity right now to apply it. Because a very special form of worship are the sacraments that God has set aside. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a very special time for God's disciples. And so, therefore, what we have learned is, 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 is the ability to worship right. So let's just do that. When you come to this table, and again, I mean, you're going to have to imagine it because it's not here. But when you come to this table, come with a broken heart. Come bankrupt. Come hungering and thirsting to have communion with Christ. Because that's, that's what this is. It, it is something that you do from the heart. Now you know that every time we serve communion, I do what's called fencing the table. And, and that is to warn people, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians, that you don't want to take this, this sacrament in an unworthy manner. It, it, it is not designed for those who do not know the Lord and do not love Him and are not His disciples and are not following Him. As I said earlier, for the the words of, of praise to be on the lips of those who reject God's plan of redemption and all that he suffered through to send his son to die on the cross. And you say thanks, but no thanks. Don't expect him to be happy when you give him mock praise or you take his sacrament. This is a time for the disciples of Jesus who love him to commune with him. He's here, brothers and sisters. He's not here physically. Nothing's going to happen to the elements. They're not going to turn into the body and blood of Jesus. But he is here spiritually. He is in our midst. This is the time that we commune with the glorified and risen Christ. So come with a broken heart. Come with your soul exposed to be filled with the Spirit of God. Come exalting him. Come praising him. Come bringing him the glory. Come recognizing that you could never approach this table through any other means except Jesus the Christ. There's no way the holiness of God completely forbids you in His presence and you are entering into the closest communion and relationship with the second member of the Godhead and the risen Christ. So come exalting Him. Come Totally focused on him. This is not something that you do for yourself. This is a time that you glorify God and you glorify him alone. Come, brothers and sisters, in all humility. Don't come with those crowns on your head. Take them off and throw them at his feet. Fall down before the Lord even as those mighty seraphim and the 24 elders do. Uh, In your mind's eye, I don't want you laying on the floor, but prostrate before God. You have no right to take this communion. None. It is because of the mercy and the grace and the love and the compassion of Christ that you are here. And there is no arrogance to be found in that. So come with a humble heart. Come habitually. Come often. I'm not one of those who believes that you take. The Lord's Supper every single time you gather together, although there are those who do. If you are really kind of dogmatic that way, I'll remind you that this was instituted at the Passover, which was a -a once-a-year feast. But I don't think we should take it once a year either. I know that the early church in Acts, they took it very often. Some people take it every, mo- every week. Some people take it every other week. Some people like us take it every month. Some people take it every quarter. I don't think the Holy Spirit is specific about how often that we take it, but when we do, we take it habitually. This is a means of grace, brothers and sisters. This is a time of worship. Let's worship Him by taking this communion. Those of you who aren't here, and I know that many of you are afraid to not come and to, to be in the, uh, the community because of this virus. I worry about you. I'm concerned about you. Some of you I know haven't taken this, this communion in over a year. And every time we take it, I offer to come by your house. Wear a hazmat suit if you want me to. Sit outside on the porch. Have a little mini worship service and serve you communion. I'd be more than happy to do that. So far, I don't have a single taker. So I'm concerned that you're not doing it habitually as we're called to do in the presence of others, always corporately. And finally, with thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, if he's your Lord, if you've given him your life, he's your Savior and your King of kings and Lord of lords of your life, you have everything on this earth and the earth to come to be thankful for Nothing to be arrogant, but everything to be thankful for because you are the product of mercy and untold grace. With that, prepare your hearts as we take this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we now take this sacrament, the one that you instituted on the night before you were crucified. The one that brings our remembrance to the elements and what they mean. The ones that reminds us that, that this salvation was won for us at, at a horrible cost to you. But also one that was glorified and redeemed and just made wonderful because you raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. And it it's also a sacrament that points us forward to the time that you will return. And so, Lord, for each heart who takes this, Lord, may, may, may it be a time of growth, but also may it be a time of worship. Worship that is for you and for you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, is a little bit upset at them because they are taking this communion, this this sacrament in an unworthy manner, uh, drinking, eating, not recognizing what it was for. But when he instructs them about how they should take take this, this is what he says. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He went on to say, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that is the way we end this sacrament, by saying in our hearts, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for the sacrament that you have given us. Thank you that it's not just something we do mechanically. It's not just something that we stick on the end of a service and then try to rush through. But rather a very special time that you have given us to communion with you, to be yours. Lord, we look forward to, a, 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 in the near future, being able to return to um, a little more elegant way of taking this. But we thank you that you've given us the options so that we can still continue to take this without having the fear of transmitting this particular virus. We know that it is always in your plan, in your will that things are done. So, Lord, I pray your blessing upon those who have taken this, and I pray that you would accept this as we intend it, as a form of worship, giving you the glory, exalting you above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.